Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. All right, welcome back, everybody. Big episode here, lots to get to. Um, in fact, in the second half of this episode, I have a discussion with an individual who's going to remain anonymous, but I've brought up this individual before, specifically regarding their past work as a paramedic and the Technical Emergency Response Training, or TERT, that they received, again, when they were a paramedic, and uh, it is done through the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They're going to be on the second half of this episode describing what that was like, how strange that all is, and how it was when they were watching the East Palestine stuff go down that they were looking around and basically saying it doesn't look like anybody's following any kind of policy that you would have to follow regarding that incident. So again, stay tuned for that in the second half of this episode. But there's a number of things I want to get to here specifically regarding education and then just one jab-related story here very quickly. First of all, let me let me begin with this. Um, there was a story last week from the U.S. Supreme Court and how they have allowed now $6 billion in student loan debt settlement. This is according to NBC, of course. My apologies for the reference here, but it says the justices declined to intervene over a class action settlement that could lead to the cancellations of more than 200,000 loans based on claims that colleges misled students. This is going to be an interesting one. Uh, it says that the settlements will allow thousands of student loan debts to be canceled and will go into effect after the Supreme Court on Thursday declined to block it. The Supreme Court, in a brief order, rejected a request made by colleges challenging the settlement. The case is unrelated to President Joe Biden's broader effort to forgive student loan debt, which is also before the justices with a ruling due in the next two months. Says the class action settlement concerns loans that borrowers claim should be canceled because they were taken out based on misrepresentations made by their schools, many of which are for profit. The settlement could be worth more than $6 billion. This will be interesting. It was, uh, let's see, it says again, the application from the Supreme Court was filed by Everglades College, Lincoln Educational Services Corporation. Uh, and American National University. Lincoln and American National are for-profit enterprises, while Everglades is not for-profit. All three operate colleges. The federal government placed on a list of more than 150 institutions that it said are linked with claims of substantial misconduct. One of the major places where, well, I, I should say this, one of the reasons that these rulings typically come down regarding for-profit universities, and again, some of them are online, is that they they don't tell their students that they are not accredited or that the degree that the student is going after is not going to give them any kind of certification toward the thing that they are seeking, basically. So if they're trying to become a counselor or even a psychologist, they may graduate, but they're not graduating as a licensed psychologist, and the student believes that that's the case when, in fact, it isn't. So, yeah. This has always been one of those debatable things because, again, it boils down to the student doing their due diligence 
But then again, some of these universities just flat out mislead people on purpose, and they either hide the information uh, or they don't make it broadly known. Point is, is that if you're going to attend an online university or any school for that matter, you've got to ask these kinds of questions. You have to know the, the, the short-term and long-term ramifications of the degree that you are seeking and whether or not um, all of the T's are going to be crossed and the I's are going to be dotted and, and you're going to end up with the degree that you actually have earned, along with all of the paperwork and certification necessary to take you to the next step, whatever that may be. So, yeah, this isn't a bad thing. This is, this is one of those things that even Betsy DeVos was, was strong against in, in going after with regularity. But uh, at the same time, again, a student has to do their due diligence. And it's not always the university's fault. Sometimes it's just the student doesn't know what they're getting into because they didn't bother looking it up. Okay. With that aside now, I want to spend some time here on this, on this topic very quickly. And I have two stories that I want to play for you, two audio clips that I want to play. Um, this specifically has to do with these bomb threats that are consistently occurring within American K-12 schools and even, I'm sure, some university settings. I could spend a full episode on this subject alone because this right here, in my opinion, proves how fragile the K-12 environment really is. Now, you may recall back when the Nashville hoax was taking place, there were a lot of bomb threats even the very next day and a couple of days after that. This is not an accident, and this this really is the point that I want to hone in on before I play these two particular stories. The K-12 environment is so fragile that they will believe anything. Again, they are indoctrination camps, so all it takes is a phone call, a text message, or an email to specified people within a district, and then all hell breaks loose. And remember, these environments and the people who work within, in particular the people who are in charge, would want everybody to believe that they are proactive, when in fact they are not. Again, every time a K-12 or university official says proactive, ladies and gentlemen, they are reactive. It's the exact opposite of what they're saying is actually who they are and, and what they do. The reason that these so-called bomb threats are not accidents is, in my opinion, they are very coordinated. They're, they're not accidental by any stretch. The timing could not be more suspicious. And again, if I had to pinpoint who is responsible for it, I would simply say it's the deep state. It is the FBI, the CIA, and they are the ones concocting these text messages and emails anonymously and then shooting them out to school districts and school officials within districts, and then they are responding in kind. They believe that they are real. They don't know who sends them. They never figure out who sends them, hardly ever, uh, unless it ends up being a singular student, which is not likely to occur. And even in those cases, it can be very difficult to figure out that it's in fact a singular student. So not to really give up the goose here when it comes to how a bomb threat can actually take place, but all you'd really need in order to carry one out, and I'm not suggesting this by any stretch, but it's not difficult. All you need is a virtual protection network, a VPN, so that they can't track your, your IP address to the best of your ability anyway, and then an anonymous email address. That's about it. 
as long as you have those or even a burner phone, if you have one of those and you send a text message to specified people within a school district at a specified phone number or email, they will all believe it. They will believe it at face value. And of course, that's them saying, well, we're being proactive and preventative as best we can. and We have to take all threats seriously. I mean, these are the things that they will say. The problem is, is that their response is either one of total neglect or it's complete chaos. It's either A or it's Z. It's never anything in the middle like, hey, let's figure out who did this. Let's do whatever we can to bring this to the public so that the public understands what's going on. And let's even toss out the question or the idea that, yes, this could very well be the CIA, the FBI, and that they do this after either real or manufactured events that make the national news in the interest of scaring people falsely and trying to create panic. Again, the American K-12 school district can be manipulated so easily and with very little effort that it actually is in the DNA of the environment itself. It's in the working environment. It, of course, as I said earlier, is an indoctrination camp. Many of the people who work within and attend are fully brainwashed. They have no idea they are, hence the effectiveness of brainwashing. But I want to play two particular stories here because last week, specifically on Friday, there were approximately 40 schools or 40 school districts. It was one of the two, my apologies, but I'll play the, I'll play the, uh, the audio here in Indiana, specifically regarding bomb threats, and they were closed. All of these schools were closed. That's not, <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not some grade school kid sitting at home going, you know what? I want a three day weekend today. And then, you know, sends out an email or a text message. Th that's not what that is. This isn't some disgruntled employee who, uh, you know, again, wants a three day weekend and wants to stick it to the man. That's not what this is. It's too coordinated. This is coming again from the deep state, FBI, CIA, for the purpose of creating panic and a reliance on the actual school districts themselves and the system themselves. Because as you've heard me say a million times, and I've said it on Gab a thousand times, even on Substack, the homeschooling family is laughing their tails off when they hear of things like this because they don't have to deal with any of this manipulation. They're not being pulled around by the short hairs trying to figure out how to keep their kids safe because they already have them safe. Everybody's fine. In a homeschooling environment with the learning that's going on, everything is fine. If a, build, if a school building were on fire, in a town or, or a city, the homeschooling family would have no idea, nor would they care. This is, the, this is the divide. This is the separation between reality and a manufactured chaotic scene at the hands of, of government. So I want you to keep that in mind again going forward. Anytime you hear of these bomb scares or these bomb threats or all these schools are closed because of all these threats, ladies and gentlemen, they're fake. Not only are they fake, but more sinister, I would say in a more sinister way, they're coordinated. They're not an accident. It's not Billy or Sally or Billy's friends getting together and saying, let's call one in, guys. This will be a funny senior prank. That's not what it is. When they're on a grand scale like this, it is coordinated from the deep state, FBI, CIA, you name it. So here's the first one. 
And again, this is from Indiana, um, Fox 59. And I will play this. And uh, yeah, here's the audio with that. Here we go. Dozens of school districts throughout the state receiving bomb threats overnight. And just into the newsroom, we now have a statement from federal officials. The statement sent to our newsroom said this. The FBI is aware of the threats and they're working now in coordination with our state and local law enforcement partners to investigate. And as more details come in this morning, our Scott Jones has been staying on top of it all. Scott, what's the latest? Well, a lot is happening. Early this morning, the Henry County Sheriff sent out an email from an intelligence center that said a bomb threat had been emailed to nearly 40 schools. Here's what we know. It was written in Arabic script and was translated as follows. Quote, one of your schools has a bomb inside. It is well built, solid, and discreetly located. Considering that today is your last day, I think it is appropriate for you to pray to God. Allah is the greatest. And that was it. Even though the Shenandoah School District was the only one included in the list of nearly 40 schools that received that bomb threat, the sheriff notified all the schools within the county of that situation. Shenandoah School then determined it was in the best interest for the safety of the students and the staff to do an e-learning day. The Shenandoah SRO, along with deputies from the Henry County Sheriff's Office, completed a thorough search of the building's With the assistance of a bomb dog from Delaware County, nothing suspicious was located. And after that, a lot of districts, as you can imagine, decided to do e-learning or just close entirely. Some stayed open. Now, imagine being a parent and getting a phone call like this early in the morning. This is a message from Center Grove Community School Corporation. Center Grove Schools will be closed on Friday, April 14, 2023, with no e-learning due to a bomb threat. School building staff should not report today. All events are canceled. More information has been shared via email. Yeah, here's some of the schools affected. Center Grove closed along with Garen Catholic High School. There are e-learning days for Frankton, LaPel, Lebanon Community School Corporation, Madison Grant Community, all the way down to Noblesville, Shelbyville Central Schools, and Western Wayne Schools closed. Not all schools are closed. Edinburgh Community School Corporation, they got the threat this morning and said schools were searched and the threat, they said, was not deemed as credible. So for the very latest on all this, you can go to fox59.com. By the way, I believe we're in the process of getting a statement from the Indiana State Police. As soon as we get that, Lindy will tell you that coming up in about the next 25 minutes or so. Guys, back to you. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. But don't worry, everybody. The FBI is there to help with local law enforcement to figure out what's going on. No one will be arrested. No one will be investigated. The entire thing, again, is a setup. It's a script. Again, they even try to paint the individual as being a Muslim or a Muslim terrorist. It's a hoax. The whole thing is a hoax, and it's perpetuated probably by the FBI. Again, it's like asking, well, (laughs) it's like this. It's like an arsonist showing up to one of the buildings that they themselves burned down and they're promising to help everybody figure out what actually happened and how the fire started. If the FBI is on the scene, ladies and gentlemen, then they're the ones that were responsible for doing it. It's that simple. So again, when, it, when they are that large, okay, and they're, and they're that specific, again, in, in particular, when they're trying to paint it 
as a, as a particular individual or a particular group, because most bomb threats wouldn't. They wouldn't say anything about Allah or uh, you know, any, any particular religion or nationality of any kind. They would just be a random they would just be a random phone call or a random note on a desk or something like that that a student leaves. Or like I said earlier, an email. An email goes out to a superintendent, a couple of secretaries in a couple of buildings, a couple of uh, building administrators, and then again, everybody just believes it, and then that's the way that it goes down. But again, they're not going to find anybody. They're not going to find anything. This second story, however, this again is from Denver, and it's titled Loveland High School Parents Voice Frustrations Over School Threat Investigation Communication Lag. This was tossed to me by a listener of the show. I appreciate you sending this my way. Um, this one's funny too. And again, this had to do with a text message that this school received apparently. And then uh, it, it wasn't taken seriously, I guess. And then a bunch of parents thought that their kids could have died. Again, you know, you got to hand it to the FBI and whoever it is that puts these together. They really are preying, I should say, on the emotions of these individuals who believe all of these school shootings are real. Again, they're just leading them around as much as they can, manipulating their minds, because they know that they can. They know that there will be a percentage of the population who attends these school districts and these school buildings and will believe every single thing on their television. So let me play the audio of this. And again, they decided to have a quick little kind of a town hall meeting where concerned parents could come in and uh, ask questions to the administration. And apparently they placed the high school principal on leave for, I don't know, a few days and then brought him back and said, look, it wasn't his fault. It's not a fireable offense, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, this is just more of the communication cave-in that goes on during these particular situations, which part of me finds it remarkably amusing. And the other part of it's just pathetic. So uh, here's that audio. Give this a listen. Tonight, we are following up on the chaos that unfolded at Loveland High School more than two weeks ago. A non-credible threat caused a lot of frustration among families. Well, school officials telling parents tonight they acknowledge there was, quote, ultimate breakdown between them, their staff, and the families. And the school held a listening forum tonight, and Denver 7's Danielle Freuder was there and heard parents' concerns. Loveland High School parents had their first opportunity to talk to school district officials and the Loveland Police Department face-to-face. -face. It's been more than two weeks since a non-credible threat led to chaos at the high school and more than a dozen teachers leaving campus. Well, there was definitely a lot of frustration, for sure. It was a scary thing that we went through. Two days later, the principal was placed on leave. He was recently reinstated. At Thursday's meeting, he acknowledged the confusion may have started right after that morning's staff meeting. He said he told his staff at the end of the meeting that police were investigating a threat, but that it appeared to not be credible. He acknowledges some teachers were confused by what that meant. That's my number one mistake, is not stopping right there, recognizing there was, a, there was confusion. I didn't see it. And then I left to go work with the people that were there. Parents at the meeting asked why some of those teachers left, speculating that they didn't trust the process or were under the impression the threat was real. The panel says they met with those teachers. Leaving that a safety situation was taking place and they felt for their family to leave. Others felt that 
if, if school was going to continue and this threat was taking place, that they felt that their student safety was number one, and they felt like they were obligated to take the next steps to kind of push, push the idea that we're, we're not going to be here. Because In the meeting, the actual safe-to-tell tip that sparked all of this was read out loud. Denver 7 is choosing not to repeat the language in the tip to not highlight the alert. The Loveland police chief said the vague, disruptive, nondescript verbiage used is typically a red flag that a threat is fake, although any threat will be taken seriously and investigated. The district says this will not be the last time they meet with the Loveland community to see exactly how they can change protocols and expectations moving forward. In Loveland, I'm Danielle Kreuter, Denver 7. It's just too rich. This stuff is too rich. It's clearly the FBI. Again, that's my opinion. That's my take. This isn't Billy or Sally calling it in or or sending a random text message in order, again, to have a three-day weekend. This is coordinated because they're preying on the emotions of the gullible. They know that these individuals believe all these fake shootings. They know that they watch their televisions and they're glued to them. And they know that even the school employees are. Again, parents aside for just a second, they know that the school employees are. So even in this case, you had 10 school teachers just leave after their Friday faculty meeting in the morning, uh, where the principal again downplayed a potential threat and said, you know, we don't think it's credible. Let's just have a great day. Okay, see you later, everybody. And then everybody leaves, but 10 teachers are like, hell no, I'm leaving and I'm taking my kid with me. You know, forget my first period math class, they're on their own. And then they just split. That, uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's funny. I think that's funny. Because again, that's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That is a communication breakdown without a doubt. But uh, those 10 teachers, again, believed it. And uh, clearly the majority of the building didn't, and the majority of the building was not scared in any way. Not to mention the, uh, the little meeting room or auditorium where they had this meeting with a panel of individuals, including the principal and, and then parents sitting in the crowd and asking questions. The room is not packed. So there's not a ton of parents there asking a bunch of questions, and it's certainly not every parent asking a bunch of questions. It looks like, again, the individuals who are likely to believe such things. Again, as I said earlier, the FBI and the government know that there's always going to be a large percentage of the population that watches television, believes the American K-12 school system, believes government, doesn't want to think that government could be manipulated or that government agencies could be at war with other government agencies and that children and families are caught in the middle uh, being manipulated in, you know, basically throughout any scenario that they concoct themselves. I mean, the, the people responsible know that for a fact. They know that they can do that. So the thing going forward, I think, that I just want people to pay attention to is the next time you hear of something like this take place, first of all, don't believe it. Don't think for a minute that it's just a student or a staff member or a random person calling it in. Chances are it's someone within the government. And, and uh, well, I should say this, in particular, if they are on a grand scale. If all of a the sudden there are bomb threats all across the United States like there was after the Nashville thing, after all of that, and again, they were nationwide. I, there were some in Pennsylvania. There were some in Ohio. There were some in probably every state 
that very week. The government is doing that in order to control people and panic people as much as humanly possible. That's that's their motive. That's exactly why they do it. They know what they're doing, and they know that there's going to be a percentage that is gullible enough to believe it. But again, if you homeschool your children, or your children are old enough to read and write themselves and teach their siblings and teach one another in a safer environment, then that's what you should be doing, because they're the ones laughing at these scenarios. These scenarios occur, the news tries to make it out like, oh, everybody's experiencing this at the exact same time. No, nope. Many people never experience such things because they take control of their lives and their emotions themselves instead of leaving it to government to dictate what goes on within the environment that they are attending and then how they should feel about said thing. So, yeah. Again, the homeschooling family is laughing, and anybody looking at this objectively or investigating such things is usually going to arrive at the conclusion that it has to come from within. It has to be a government agency that is calling these in in order to stir up panic or uh, you know, expose somebody within the environment or whatever it may be, but usually it's just to continue the manipulation that goes on. And then, of course, as you just heard within those two stories, the, uh, the the local news media runs with the story heavily and then pushes it out there to the public even more to even ramp them up further. So, yeah, there you go. Just kind of keep that in mind going forward that the next time it happens on a grand scale, it's probably the FBI. Okay, here's the next one. I've got some audio here I want to play. This is titled, this is from uh, Dan Bongino, but it was on Fox News, specifically Jesse Waters' program. This one is awful. These tranny stories just keep pulling me back in, and I wish that they didn't, but they're terrible. And this one is an abomination. It's titled, Mom Fights Back After School Tries to Transition Child Without Her Knowledge. This school counselor, school psychologist, whoever it was that was talking with this, uh, this mother's child, who again was attending this school, even went so far as to give them a vest to wear that would basically press their breasts down further in an effort to either hide them or damage them in some way so that the individual could uh, try to look more like a boy. This is beyond disgusting, but Again, this is directly from Jesse Waters, and he ends up talking with the mother and the mother's lawyer because, of course, she's suing the school as she should. I'll come in at the end of this because I, of course, have, in my humble opinion, the solution to this entire problem. And there are many solutions, but there's, a, there's an order of operations that has to take place from parents who are stuck in a situation like this. And there, there's an order that should be taken, in my opinion, and an order that should not be taken. But give this story a listen, and I'll come in on the end and, uh, and wrap it up here. At Great Salt Bay School in Maine, school officials tried to sexually transition a student behind her mom's back. The school went full Dylan, calling her by a different name, and even giving her chest binders. A chest binder is like a compression sleeve that you put around your upper body to flatten your chest. It's the next step in transitioning a girl to a boy. All that's left, basically, is hormone replacement therapy. And the school told the girl not to tell her parents and encouraged her to transition into a boy. Eventually, the girl's mom, Amber Levine, found out and confronted the school board. Watch. She's a minor child. My minor child. 
and under no circumstances should she have been provided a test by her knowledge of the parents. This secret has caused our child exacerbated symptoms of distress, anxiety, and aggression. But the school didn't punish the official for dealing chest binders. The school didn't find anything wrong with that. There's a name for this. A social worker at the school encouraged a student to keep a secret from their parents. This is the very definition of child predatory sexual group. Predators work to gain a victim's trust by driving the registers into their parents. And although the mother considers herself a Democrat, she's being attacked for her beliefs by other Democrats. And now she's standing up to the school board. The mom is suing the school. Amber Levine and her attorney, Adam Shelton, join me now. Amber, I'm sorry this is going on. What, is, what has been the school's response? That this is just normal to do this behind your back? Yeah, they've they've basically defended the social workers' behaviors, which has has been a little concerning for sure. What did they specifically say? It's okay to transition a child? Yeah, they've essentially said that the behavior of the social worker, um, they, they don't see any wrongdoing here. They didn't do an investigation. They essentially had a conversation with the social worker and myself and decided that he did nothing wrong. Oh my gosh. How's your daughter doing? You know, I, I want to protect her privacy, but she's doing really great academically. Um, I've pulled her from the school and she's homeschooling currently. And so she's doing well. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Have you been yeah. kind of attacked online by, by other people? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, this has become a political issue. Um, it's a parental rights issue. And whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, I firmly believe that um, you should want your rights as a parent to be protected. Um, I spoke at a legislative hearing on Thursday against a bill here in the state of Maine, LD 394, um, that uh, would allow social workers to behave like this. Um, and so I encourage you, if you live in the great state of Maine, to reach out to your representatives and encourage them uh, to not allow this bill to pass. Yeah, I love Maine. Uh, I can't believe that's happening there. All right, so Adam, what's the legal situation here? Are you guys going to win in court? I think, uh, I think we're well positioned to win in court. The Supreme Court has long held that parents have a fundamental right to control and direct the education, upbringing, and healthcare decisions of their children. That right was clearly violated here by the Great Salt Bay Community School Board and some school officials because parents cannot meaningfully exercise this right if schools are empowered to keep information from parents. Okay, that was the end of it. Uh, here's the thing. A couple of ironies here, of course. This is probably an individual who voted for Joe Biden, so there you go. Uh, number two, the strategy is Bolshevism, driving the wedge between students and parents or children and their parents is a Bolshevik tactic. It's been at play and in play for well over 120, 130, 140 plus years. It's an old tactic. It continues to work. It's, it's Bolshevism. It's Marxism. It's all of it wrapped into one. Um, a couple of other things. Again, it was a sh it was a social worker. So my apologies earlier when I said it was a, a counselor or a school psychologist. It was a social worker, which begs the question again: Why was this particular student talking with a social worker? Because in reality, within these environments, there's never a situation where all students or even random students would be talking with a school social worker. 
unless, of course, there is a problem within the home or there's a divorce of some kind or the social worker has become legally involved with said student and then there's paperwork that's built up about the student or whatever. So I have a few more questions with that. But my last point with this is is the following. If you're any parent listening to that and you attend that particular school and this was allowed to happen, why are you still sending your child to that school? I mean, just because it didn't happen to your kid or doesn't happen to your child within that environment doesn't mean that you're somehow free from the consequences of this. The school environment has just shown everybody what they're capable of doing. Certainly at least one individual, but there's no way that that one social worker was the only person who knew that these kinds of things were taking place. So why would you keep sending your children there? You even heard the mother. Her child homeschools is academically sound. Everything is fine. She's way better off, happier, and, and is homeschooling now. It's, it's not only saved her life, but it's saved her education. She's now going to be smarter than anybody else who attends that entire town because she's homeschooling now. But that's what it took in order to have the child homeschooling. That's the sad part also. I just think it's, it's kind of pathetic when individuals, again, will, will send their children to these environments and then they'll say to themselves, well, again, that didn't happen to my kid, so I don't need to pull my kid out because I don't care and it didn't happen to my kid. It doesn't matter. It's happening under the same roof. If it's happening under the same roof, that, of where you're sending your children, clearly there's a problem there. Now, here's the order of operations because this matters. And this is, a, well, it's frankly, unfortunately, a step in the process that gets missed by many parents who find themselves in a situation like this parent did with their child is that when your child or a child is being abused within these school environments, it's unfortunately very common for the parent to contact the district first, or even contact the specific school, speak with an administrator, start asking questions, etc., etc. My recommendation is that you not do that. If you get the school district involved immediately, then the school district knows that someone's paying attention to something that they are doing as a district that could bring about a serious legal problem for them. You don't want the school district to know that you're investigating something. You don't want the school district to know that this is taking place when you have to assume that many of them or some of the officials who work within the district have no idea that it's taking place. You don't want to give them the upper hand. So in any situation regarding sexual grooming, physical violence, whatever it is, something that you know is illegal, you have to bring it to the police department. Take it to the cops first. You can take it to local police. You can take it to township police. You can take it to a sheriff's department. You can take it to all of them, and I recommend you do that. Because sometimes, and we know this is an unfortunate reality, is that local police will work hand-in-hand with school districts to protect one another. And that the police department doesn't really act independently from a school district in many cases. In many cases, they're in each other's back pockets and they work together all the time. This is one of the problems with resource officers that I have, is that they'll get involved with one another, but they get involved with one another as organizations or institutions because they're interested in just protecting one another. So my recommendation 
is that in a situation like this parent was in, they clearly went to the school board with a with an entire speech written out and started to tell the school board what was going on. The school board looked like they had no idea. Some of them may have looked like they had an idea, but some of them had no idea. You want to surprise school board members, basically, with a police report that you've already filled out. Because as I've written about in the past in my books, and as I've said here, if a police department takes over an investigation, the school district has to take a back seat to that investigation. Which does one thing, really. It makes the school district look guilty. Because if the police are investigating something, the school district is going to claim ignorance and say that, well, we had no, we had no idea. We didn't know this was going on. This is an abomination. Uh, this is not our fault. And the actions of one do not represent the actions of the whole. They will go through every single excuse that they possibly can, but they're on their heels and their back is against a wall. That's where you want school boards. That's where you want school districts all of the time. You want them, you want to remind them that you as the parent always have the oversight, that you as the citizen always have the oversight. And the process and one of the steps, again, in this order of operations that people forget about or don't know about in a school district, of course, is certainly not going to be open and, and transparent, quote unquote, and tell anybody about this. Is that again, when a police department takes over an investigation, the school district cannot reply, respond, or have any input on it whatsoever. The detectives interview the people who have been uh, alleged in, in said crime. They, they go after the names of the individuals that have been mentioned in the, in the filing of the police report. They're the ones that do the full-blown investigation. If they find that the school district ends up knowing about said incident and attempting to cover it up, then that's usually when they bring either criminal charges or they recommend that the district fire these people and so on and so forth. But the, the point is, is that the order of operations matters. You go to the police first. And if you go to a police department and you don't trust them, then you go to another one. And you tell that police department that you've gone to the first one, but you don't trust them because they work too closely with the school district and they might work to cover this up. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't fill out a police report at the first school or at the, uh, I'm sorry, the first police department. You certainly should. You should fill out as many police reports as it takes. But when a crime has taken place, you never go to the school board and go, hey, I found out a crime took place uh, and it took place in one of your buildings, and it was against this student, and it had to do with this. You never want to alert them, because then they start shredding papers. Then they start covering things up. Then they start meeting behind closed doors, trying to get on the same page about things. These people conspire all of the time. All of the time. It is, it's in their job description, for Christ's sake. This is, this is what they do. And they're interested in image protection. It is their number one concern, is always image protection. They're bad at it, but that doesn't mean that that's not the one thing that they're always trying to look out for. So that's the order of operations for any kind of an illegal incident, is that you always go to the police first. You always get all, give all of the evidence to the police first, multiple copies, save multiple copies of things. Make sure you have names, dates, actual incidents that took place, where they took place, all of it. You have to have all of the specifics and have them in chronological order. 
from the very first, from the list of names at the very top, and then as the specific incidents start to take place in chronological order. Make it very easy for a detective to read so that they can see what's going on and determine if a crime is taking place. Keep in mind, police departments aren't lawyers. Cops aren't lawyers. So they don't always know the law. They enforce the law sometimes when a lawyer tells them they have to. But police departments have lawyers that work within also, so, you know, discretion, unfortunately. Discretion is one of those things that gets utilized all of the time. It's an unfortunate reality, but there you go. I think. Okay, here's the last story before I move on to some jab things, and then my discussion with this individual again regarding their Homeland Security training for uh, being a paramedic, which was, again, beyond bizarre. Um, let me see here. This this specifically, again, I could spend a whole episode on this particular topic, but I do want to mention this because this happened here locally. This is from the Miami student here at Miami University, and it is titled the following. It was also in the, uh, the Tri-County newspaper as well. It's titled, Widow of Miami Assistant Provost Sues University, Former Provost, and Two Administrators for Wrongful Death. This specifically, as you might expect, has to do with suicides. It's not necessarily jab-related, although that could have been certainly uh, one of the, uh, I don't know, motivating factors for all we know. But suicide and, and bullying within education environments is rampant. I have written about it in every single book I've ever written. It's, um, it's a massive problem. It occurred with me when I was a K-12 teacher. It, it occurred with endless people I worked with. It almost always comes at the hands of administration from the top down, so to speak. And that was certainly the case with, with this individual here. You've heard me mention uh, the, the former provost's name before. His name is Jason Osborne. He's one of the people being sued as a result of, of this uh, bullying that was taking place and this harassment that was taking place that led to an assistant provost taking his own life. He uh, swallowed a bunch of prescription pills, left a note behind for his wife, and there you go. But let me read through this here because it's sad, but it's something that does occur within these environments with regularity. It says that this story has been updated to include a statement from the university themselves, and as you would expect, the university says, well, it's not our fault. We didn't do anything wrong. It says the widow of a Miami University assistant provost has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Miami University, the board of trustees, and former provost Jason Osborne, who, by the way, if you're curious, he is gay, he's a cat owner, and he's crazy. He also went after my father when my dad was still working there, uh, slandered my dad, and Jason Osborne is a psycho, allegedly, allegedly. And again, these psychos work with one another, allegedly, and, uh, and conspire like nobody's business because, again, it, it, they're Bolsheviks and they're Marxists. They are miserable people, and they have to make everybody around them miserable because that's who they are and that's what they do. And then they, of course, try to seek uh, money for it and, and profit off of making other people miserable as best they can. They are, they are schemers, without a doubt. It continues. It says, William Knight, assistant provost for the Office of Institutional Research and Effectiveness, died by suicide two years ago today. This was written on April 7th. 
It says the lawsuit filed by Knight's widow, uh, Ardeen, if I'm saying that right, Ardeen Knight, also named Ruth Groom, Associate Vice President for Academic Personnel, and Lindsay Carpenter, Associate Vice President for Budget and Analytics in the lawsuit. The newspaper apparently, or I'm sorry, the attorney, Angela Wallace Osborne Groom and Carpenter did not immediately respond to requests for comment. It says William Knight died on April 7th, 2021, exactly two years ago. The recent filed lawsuit states that he died by suicide. According to the lawsuit, Osborne was his direct supervisor. It then says that Knight reported directly to Carpenter for his primary research project. Groom, a human resources representative, was responsible for addressing Knight's complaints. See how they all circle the wagons? They get the office, they get the human resources, they get the budget director, they get all these people to protect one another while trying to destroy a singular person because it's very difficult for a singular person to stand up for themselves in front of the machine and all of these departments. Because remember, ladies and gentlemen, it's never the department's fault. It's never the individuals within the departments. It's the lone person that's being targeted. It's it's always their fault. I mean, these people have no shame. It says the lawsuit was filed Thursday afternoon with Butler County Courts, along with the wrongful death lawsuit. Knight's widow filed for intentional infliction of emotional distress, vicarious liability, conspiracy, and neglect uh, infliction of emotional distress. Arden Knight, the departed's wife, is asking for in excess of $25,000 for each count, totaling at least $125,000 in damages. In a statement to the Miami Student Tuesday, April 11th, Alicia Lipton, Associate Director for Media Relations, wrote that Knight was a valued member of the community. Quote, his family and friends remain in our thoughts as they grieve, ask questions, and seek peace, Lipton wrote. Uh, at, a univer- at the university, rather, Knight's responsibilities included leading the institutional research function and providing assistance to faculty and staff for student learning assessment and coordinating the strategic planning process. During his career, Knight won multiple awards for institutional research when he was employed at Bowling Green State University, along with multiple awards for national institutional research organizations. He also worked on more than 200 publications, presentations, and dissertations. And there's a picture of him. Pleasant looking fellow. Uh, There you go. Uh, It says, according to the lawsuit's filing, Osborne requested a statistical report from Knight in January of 2021. In February that year, Knight sent Osborne a draft of the report, which Osborne circulated despite Knight's warnings that it was not ready to be shared. After Osborne received quote-unquote negative comments from the recipients of the report about the accuracy of the data, the filing alleged that he set out to destroy William. It says, quote, William's workload, which was already in excess of 60 hours per week, immediately increased dramatically with the new requirements to validate and explain every step to Carpenter, the lawsuit reads. William communicated with the provost to request a reduction in his workload, which was denied. In emails obtained by the Miami student last summer as part of an investigation into Osborne's resignation, Knight shared his history of depression with Osborne in a March 19 email. 
and said he was aware that Osborne wasn't satisfied with his performance. Quote, I'm aware that my work over the past few weeks has not been acceptable to you and has caused you to lose trust in me as a senior leader in academic affairs, Knight wrote. He said, quote, with this in mind, I am thinking it is in the best interest of all of us if I seek new employment at another university. In his response, Osborne mentioned that Knight had spoken about his mental health multiple times in recent months. Quote, we can and will accommodate whatever is needed to support your long-term wellness, Osborne wrote. He also added that he would not hold it against Knight if he sought employment elsewhere and that they would celebrate those opportunities, quote-unquote. Jason Osborne's a piece of shit. There's just no way around it. Um, It continues, it says, In her statement to the university, Lipton said Knight's colleagues offered support to Knight when he brought up his struggles with mental health. Quote, we believe the lawsuit filed against the university regarding the death of Dr. Knight is unjustified. Well, of course you do. You're the university spokesperson. Um, Let's see. Quote, when Dr. Knight expressed his concerns that his mental health challenges were significantly affecting his work, his supervisor and colleagues responded with compassion and provided support and resources to help him succeed. According to the lawsuit, Knight's mental and physical health began declining. He requested medical leave under the Family Medical Leave Act, but processing the application was intentionally delayed by Groom. According to the lawsuit, it says Knight didn't believe he'd be able to find employment at another university if he were laid off. On April 5th of 2021, Knight was informed that he would be required to meet with Osborne Carpenter and other senior administration for a meeting concerning personal issues or personnel issues, quote unquote. On February 21st of 2021, Knight had requested in an email to Osborne to cut down on his workload for a few weeks and treat the time period as if he were recuperating from a serious illness, which isn't far from the truth. If the slower pace didn't help, he suggested that the next step would be a full break. Osborne responded by thanking Knight for sharing his experience and wrote, quote, we will find a way forward that is sustainable for everyone. William was confident that he would be terminated that meeting, the lawsuit reads. Knight died two days later, the same day the meeting was supposed to be held. There's the lawsuit. Uh, Just a little bit more here. It says, the lawsuit alleges that Osborne Carpenter and Groom engaged in a malicious pattern of harassment, bullying, and gaslighting, berating William, questioning his skills and his ability to do work, commenting on William's lack of intelligence, and questioning his commitment and loyalty to Miami University. I have no doubt about that. No doubt. This is exactly what happens, ladies and gentlemen, in the education environment when these administrators circle the wagons against a singular individual. They say they're not doing their job when clearly they are. They're probably doing it better than most around them. Because again, it's the individual who gets bullied within the workplace that's usually the best at what they do. That's usually the case. And then, of course, they always pull the, uh, well, you know, you're not a team player and Maybe you just don't like it here. That's the gaslighting part where they go, maybe you just don't like it here. I've sat in those HR meetings before. (laughs) Maybe this isn't the environment for you, Sean. 
Well, it was the environment for me for seven, nine years. I was fine for the most part. It's just when, you know, it's when, it's always when the administration gets involved in things they don't need to get involved in. That always becomes the problem. And again, in his particular case, in William's, in William Knight's particular case, clearly he was being asked to do things that these other individuals could have done themselves, but they were just piling things on on top of him. Uh, let's see here. It continues. It says the filing alleges that the defendant's conduct was extreme and dangerous and was the proximate cause of the plaintiff's serious emotional distress, including Knight's death. According to the filing, Knight left his wife a final note at the time of his death. Quote, I am so sorry, Knight wrote, according to the filing. I am, so, I am sorry that I just wasn't strong enough this time. My greatest hope was to make it to retirement with you and just live our life free from worry and fear. But when I was told yesterday that I have to attend a meeting about personnel issues, presumably about firing Knight's co-worker, and or me, they finally broke me. I am sorry I wasn't strong enough to pull myself back up this time, unquote. That's the end of the story. Ladies and gentlemen, this happens constantly within these education environments. The destruction of the mind of the individual, again, as a result of exactly what is alleged in this, in this lawsuit. The bullying, the gaslighting, the late night emails, telling them that they're not good at their job anymore when they've been fine or perfect at it every, every time beforehand, um, making more work when there doesn't need to be more work, passing off responsibility from one person to another and forcing an individual below them to do more work when they don't have to and it's not within their contract to do so, and then, of course, questioning their commitment to the entire environment. It happens, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that's the point. It happens. Th this happens in lots of working environments, but very specifically within the education environment. In fact, when it comes to the bullying and the manipulation and, and things of that nature, hospitals are right up there with American universities and American K-12 schools with the way that they mistreat their workers and the way that they bully them and harass them and intimidate them and lie about them and scheme and meddle. And I mean, th they will flat out set up their own employees in order to get rid of them. They will lie about them as the day is long and do whatever they have to do in order to, uh, to get rid of somebody who's very, very good at their job because they don't, essentially the people around them don't want to be seen as not doing their job. And that's usually the case. It's usually the case, again, in these environments where the individual who is the best at it is the person who is being bullied the most. So lots of books have been written about it. I've written about it in my books. If you're interested in reading an excellent book about bullying and bullying in the workplace, the title of the book is called The Bully at Work by a Dr. Namie. And he and his wife wrote the book, and they are in charge of, I believe, the Workplace Bully Institute, which I believe is based out of Orlando, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. But it's an excellent book. It's a book I should have read. When I was actually a school teacher, and I didn't read it until after I quit the profession, but uh, I'm still glad I read it because it it explains everything. It explains everything that goes on within those environments and the statistics around bullying within the workplace and a thousand other things. So I recommend checking that book out and giving it a read if you're interested. Okay, 
one jab-related thing here, and then I'm going to get to my discussion here with this training that this wonderful individual uh, had, but the training was beyond suspect again. Let me let me bring this up. This has to do with Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. This was making the rounds last week. I'm just going to read through this because what this shows is how the health insurance business is, of course, being incentivized to push the jabs. And then this will show everybody the percentages and the money breakdown that they were receiving as they were doing it, which, of course, as we know, hospitals were doing it, nurses, doctors, administrative boards, you name it. This is from Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield titled COVID-19 Vaccine Provider Incentive Program. It says, quote, Getting vaccinated against COVID-19 is one of the best and safest ways people can protect themselves and their families against the virus. That's a lie. Again, that right there should cause Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield to cease to exist. That first sentence. It says, as a participating practice in the COVID-19 Provider Vaccine Incentive Program, We recognize your hard work by offering incentives for helping patients make the choice to become vaccinated. Holy, holy shit. Let me reread that. It says, quote, As a participating practice in the COVID-19 Provider Vaccine Incentive Program, or PVI, we recognize your hard work by offering incentives for helping patients make the choice to become vaccinated. (laughs) These people are psychopaths. They're psychopaths. We're going to put a gun to your head, and then you can make a choice as to whether or not you would like a COVID vaccine. But remember, a gun is to your head, but remember, it's your choice. It then says eligibility. The COVID-19 Vaccine Provider Incentive Program is open to you if you are a participating Kentucky primary care provider with an Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield Medicaid Anthem panel size of 25 or more members. All Anthem members identified as receiving COVID-19 vaccination services are included in the methodology. It says vaccine results will be determined by a COVID-19 vaccine claim or by confirmation from the Kentucky Vaccine Registry. It then says the following, the results will be calculated for two time periods, September 1st, 2021, initial incentive payment, and December 31st, 2021, the final incentive payment. Here are the payments. It says, how can you qualify for a bonus? If your practice meets the below threshold for vaccination, With at least one dose by September 1st of 2021, you will receive the initial incentive payment based on the following rates. There are five bullet points under this one. The first one, 30% Anthem members vaccinated, a $20 bonus per vaccinated member. If 40% Anthem members are vaccinated, that's a $45 bonus per vaccinated member. 50% Anthem Members vaccinated, a $70 bonus per vaccinated member. If 60% of Anthem members are vaccinated, a $100 bonus. And if 75% 
of Anthem members are vaccinated, you get a $125 bonus per vaccinated member. It then finally wraps up and says, the final incentive payment is calculated based on members who are newly vaccinated between September 1st of 2021 and December 31st of 2021. See the appendix for calculation examples. If your practice meets the below threshold for vaccination with at least one dose by December 1st of 2021, you will receive the final incentive payment based on the following rates. If 30% of Anthem members are vaccinated, you get a $100 bonus per newly vaccinated member. 40%, $150 bonus. 50% of members are vaccinated, $175 bonus. 60%, a $200 bonus. And if 75% of Anthem members are vaccinated, you get a $250 bonus per newly vaccinated member. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to need more rope. God willing, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, and all these other programs and policies and, and insurance companies will cease to exist in the future because of what they have participated in. Paying their own members, paying doctors, paying countless other people in order to coerce, manipulate, and trick people into taking these shots. That means that they're behind it. They're in on the conspiracy because. When has this ever occurred before in the past? When has it ever occurred before, these methods and these tactics? It's conspiracy to commit murder. There's no other way around it. Okay. That leads me to this. I had an excellent discussion again with this individual who is going to remain anonymous. This has to do with training that they received via the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, specifically titled Technical Emergency Response Training, or TERT. They sent me a bunch of documents regarding this. I'm going to lead into our talk by reading the purpose that is laid out by the Technical Emergency Response Training Group. It says the following, and this was from back on, uh, well, this particular piece of paper is dated July of 2005. So it could be this is when this started, but I'm not entirely sure. Either way, they received their training approximately 10 years ago, as you'll hear them say. But uh, here's what the purpose says. It says, quote, in the event of an incident involving chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosives, or CBRNE hazards, responders at many skill levels are called on to protect the public. First responders at the awareness level are those individuals likely to witness or respond to an incident probably, I'm sorry, possibly involving CBRNE. Notify higher authorities and secure the site while, provo- while performing self-protection. It says emergency responders at the performance defensive level are those who act defensively, protecting nearby people, property, and the environment from the effects of the release. Their function is to analyze the incident to determine the potential magnitude of the problem, plan an initial response within the, within the capabilities and competencies of available personnel and equipment, implement the local emergency response plan, and evaluate the progress of any actions taken to ensure response objectives are being met safely, effectively, and efficiently. 
In other words, the emergency responder at the performance defensive level must act as an incident commander until the local incident command system, or ICS, is fully implemented. The WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction, Technical Emergency Response Training, TERT, course provides emergency responders with the knowledge and skills to act at the performance defensive level. The training provided at the Center for Domestic Preparedness, CDP, is guided by the definitions and competencies provided within the Office of Domestic Preparedness, ODP, Emergency Responder Guidelines, the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA, 472 Standards Standard for Professional Competence of Responders to Hazardous material, Materials Incidents, and Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, 20, uh, 29 CFR 1910.120. After receiving instruction in the areas of terrorist threat, chemical hazards, biological agents, radiological hazards, there we go, almost had a stroke, uh, and response actions, the performance defensive responders are then able to practice their knowledge and skills in the world's only toxic chemical training facility dedicated solely to emergency responders, the Chemical Ordnance Biological and Radiological Training Facility, COBRA, TF, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, here is our discussion. Give this a listen. This training was beyond strange. They point out some anomalies again, and they have serious concerns because, again, they were told that they were exposed to a biological weapon during this training. And then people were wondering whether or not they really were or not. So here's what they told me, and, uh, and, and I'll reiterate this right now. They told me that. You can reach out to me, and then I can send information their way, or they will update me with a, with a specific email, and then I'll move that email your way as the listening audience, because they're interested in whether or not anyone out there in this listening audience has participated in this training or knows someone who has, and they'd like to talk with them about some of the things that either went on or did not go on, and then whether or not they've been hurt physically as a result of potentially being exposed to something allegedly. So I'm going to throw that out there also. Feel free and contact me, and I can get you in touch with him. With that said, here is our discussion. Thank you for listening. Give it a listen, and I'll catch you on Wednesday. Back, I started, I think, uh, I just wanted to be a you know first responder EMT back in the back when I was in college, um, late nineties and, uh, started going through that, went into something else for a short while. A friend of mine talked me back into going back into that. And then I went through paramedic school to get, uh, you know, obviously more training and found out I, I liked it more than I thought I was going to. And then towards the end of our two year program to be a paramedic, uh, uh, one of the local paramedics came in and took, talked to our class about this training program that was going on at Anniston, Alabama, and talked about how cool it was, how much knowledge you got from it, and, you know, it was very hands-on training, 
some classroom stuff as well. They had to teach you how to use, you know, all the monitoring equipment and testing equipment, that sort of thing that you would be using in the their their final uh, exercise. But uh, I mean, essentially, they would you had to apply, obviously, and you send off for a packet. They send it to you. You fill it out. You have to take it to your local FEMA director uh, in your your state. They have to sign off on it, and then you send it back into uh, the FEMA office, and they send you back another packet that includes uh, airline tickets, and they fly everybody that's involved in this training into, if I remember right, Hartsfield in Atlanta, and then you have to wait there for quite a while because there were 55, I think, people in my the course that I took, which is called the technical or technical emergency response training, but there were other there were other courses going on at this facility at the same time. They don't just do that; they do a number of other things. So there were, if memory serves me, probably four or five busloads, like charter buses, full of people from all over the nation, and you had to wait for everybody to get there, and then they bust you over to uh, Fort McClellan in Aniston and there was a sort of a an intake thing they pulled everybody in and this was what was sort of unnerving is this person gets on uh and they've got like the the clipboard and then behind them comes uh an armed like I guess an army guy who's like carrying an M16 and he's you know all fatigued out and they start checking IDs to make everybody make sure everybody is who they say they are and who's supposed to be there. And then you get off the bus, and I'll talk about this a bit later, but I, I told you in the email, there was this building, and I've been looking all over the Internet, and I can't find any pictures of it, but it was what I, I guess is their incinerator building where they would, I guess, get rid of all whatever chemicals they were dealing with after the fact. I don't know, but uh, I'm still researching that. But anyway, uh, they would, you would get your IDs checked. They would take you off the bus into this building that was essentially a large classroom. Sort of have a, uh, well, it was like a welcoming thing to, you know, tell everybody what they were going to do. I mean, not that you didn't know that, but, you know, sort of the, the events that were going to happen, the order that were going to happen, in which days they were going to happen, on that sort of thing. They excused us. Uh, we went and checked our stuff in at our, I guess we stayed at the barracks that were there. Uh, I think there were two to a room. And then once we got checked in, we went and had dinner, which I'm going to tell you the was some of the best food I've ever had for the five days. I'm sure that most of us put on a pretty good amount of weight, even though we did some pretty heavy you know, exercise. The food was still phenomenal. But uh, the end of the evening, they took everybody's blood, which sort of, you know, raised an eyebrow. But I figured, well, that's part of the gig. So I wasn't quite as awake then as I am now. But uh, they they did that. And then the courses throughout the next three days were anything from how to how to use specific meters for checking the air quality to chemical papers for looking for, you know, specific chemicals. And they taught us how to use a Geiger counter, uh, you know, all the stuff that you would 
expect to use in the end of the program uh, the scenario that they were going to put you through. They taught you how to use all the stuff you're going to need. And then they had uh, some other explosives training. They had a, like a like a half a day on explosives, which there were. Uh, they had a an FBI agent that he wasn't the instructor. He was sort of a I don't know an adjunct guy, I guess. But he was he was doing most of the talking, and uh, people would bring up certain things, and he would you know shoot them down or, or you know lead them into a different direction to sort of I don't know uphold the narrative, I guess. But um, there were a number of different training scenarios that they would talk about and they would, they were teaching us in the explosives part. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a good thing that these people, I don't know if they, I mean, we didn't do background checks or anything, but they were teaching us pretty sketchy information that if you were a nefarious person, you could, you could use it against somebody. But, uh, I mean, it was, you know, everything that, that, uh, you would expect to see in this sort of training. and towards the the end of it when we had the the final exercise which was an all-day thing it was it was sort of a round robin that uh everybody did everything and it went from triage to air sampling to actually going out and getting the 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 quote-unquote patients and survivors and getting them to the triage area so they could get the proper treatment i mean everything everybody did everything so, and then, and this was when we get, we went through, you had to put on your, your, uh, your class C PPE, which was in itself a process to do it properly. And you had to go through a mask fit test to make sure that, that, uh, everything was going to fit properly. And then during this exercise, they, they told you they were going to expose you to something and they were going to expose you to, to give you confidence in your equipment which makes sense. And, but they didn't tell you what they were going to expose you to and whatever it was, if memory serves me, cause it's been a while. Uh, I don't remember it showing up on any of the monitoring equipment and testing equipment that we were using, but they were like, we will tell you what we expose you to in the debrief. So during the whole exercise, there was a, you had sort of an instructor that would follow around. I think it was about one every five or six people had an instructor that would follow them to guide them through one station to the next and make sure everybody was doing things properly. And I mean, you're getting graded on everything. So they were keeping track of what everybody was doing and they kept checking everybody's pupils and asking you if you had a headache, which is signs and symptoms of nerve agent exposure. But there's a number of different ones that will cause that. It's uh, that, and uh, they also teach you that in the classroom. Of it's basically organophosphate poison, which the acronym is to, for signs and symptoms is, if I remember right, it's called sludge, which is salivation, lacrimation, uh, urination, defecation, and I can't recall the other one, but. Um, so that's that's what they're looking for, and uh, I mean, at one point I had what I thought was like my head was a little sore, but I think it was because most people had the same thing. It was because they got their masks on too tight, 
So bit of an issue, but didn't really alarm too many people because they didn't have any other signs of symptoms. So right. uh, the end of the, the scenario, you, you come back in to the decon area and you have to shower off all of your PPE and then you have to help your partner take off theirs. They help you take off yours. It's a very systematic process so you don't contaminate anything. And then you have to go in, shower, put on your your uh, regular clothing, and then at the end you go back into the classroom for the debrief where they told us after everybody regathered uh, that they had exposed us to BX gas, which whether or not they actually did, nobody really knows. And Again, it's been so long ago. I mean, in in that massive bunch of paperwork that we had to fill out, I'm sure there probably was some sort of release forms of some sort. But, you know, again, it's been a long time. But the the whole training issue was just, I mean, it was, they tell you that it's intensive, but it, they don't really tell you that it's that intensive. And there were there were literally people there from all over the nation and there were people there from, if I remember correctly, I've, I've got the, they give you a call sheet, sort of, that, that tells you who everybody is, where they're from, uh, what their job is at the time. And there were people there, like there was a dispatcher from the, the New York City Police Department. Uh, there were people there from the L.A. County Sheriff's Office. I mean, from little podunk town fire departments, police departments, uh, firefighter paramedics from all over the nation. I mean, there were, you know, people there from all walks of of life in the first responder world so it was it was a pretty pretty interesting and, and eye-opening experience and it was and it was just first responders yeah yeah i mean you like i said you had to be signed off on by your local <laughs> fema director and it was at the time i was trying to to get on you know any fire department that would you know that would take me <laughs> but uh which i'm I'm not a firefighter, not a doctor, not a par- paramedic any longer. Uh, all that stuff has lapsed, and I took a different direction in life. But uh, when I was uh, in one of my interviews at a, one of the local fire departments, a smaller fire department here in, in my state, there was a, a gentleman sitting over in the corner during my interview, and everybody had all of my paperwork, and they were looking over my resume, and this guy, he sort of yelled out of it. I I don't know. He was he was not one of the interviewers. He was just there. But it's like he was almost irritated that I was accepted to go to this. I was guessing that I mean I didn't say anything to him, but uh I was guessing that he tried to go and couldn't for whatever reason. I, that that was just the the feeling that I got from him. But you know after the fact that of going through all this, apparently it's a it's not difficult to get in, but yes, you have to be in the first responder world, so to say, to be allowed to go to this thing. And again, signed off by your local FEMA director, which I don't know what, you know, what credentials they go on to say yay or nay, but yes, to answer your question. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to ask that. I mean, they still, I mean, this paperwork came across your desk specifically. So was it you that they were specifically interested in? Well, again, there was the guy that came to to our class, and I mean, he just, I mean, it was a five, ten minute, you know, just, hey, this training is available if you guys are interested, 
you know, just bringing it to our attention. And, you know, you have to have, you have to at the time be in a job or career working for somebody that will give you this amount of time off. I got so, you. So, I mean, right. it, was, it was an entire week. I mean, I think we flew out there on a Monday and that was the your one travel day. And then you have your course training Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and your, uh, your final training exercises all day Friday. And then you fly home on Saturday. So, um, but I mean, he just came in and told us about it. And I want to say he gave us the contact information of whoever to get in touch with to get, you fill out the application and they send you a packet to fill out of, of, you know, a million questions. And again, it's been a long time, but, um, you have to, send that information into someone and then they make the decision on whether or not to move you forward. So you then get your packet to send off to your FEMA director. He signs off the FEMA directors. Once he gets all your information, he sends it back in to, I guess the national office. And then they send you all your intake paperwork along with your airline tickets. So, I mean, it was all, all paid for by the United States government. So, so I mean, if you well, I guess my question is this: is it a, is it a profile of a kind of person that they're looking for, or is it basically just as long as you have someone who who you work for who allows you to do it? I think they're looking for specific types of people. Uh, it's again, like you know, like I was uh, stating before, but I think before we start recording, um, this place. On their site here, I'm looking at it, says in 2013, now this, given this is 10 years ago, they trained uh, about 47,000 people. Uh, and that's what they call resident students. Uh, or they're in, the, I guess, the state of Alabama. But, I mean, they bring people in from all over the nation. And, I mean, it's people, like I said, from dispatchers who are going to need need to know the proper resources to bring in for situations like this. I mean, a dispatcher is going to need to know, okay, this is the situation that I'm getting called for. I need to have the awareness and the knowledge to start making the appropriate, you know, phone calls, getting the right people in the right places at the right time. And then, you know, you're going to need your law enforcement, your medical personnel. I mean, there were probably doctors there as well. Anybody that's involved from your very basic level first responder all the way up to the end level person that's going to be caring for anybody that's, you know, that's harmed. So, um, yeah, I'm sure they're looking for those specific people. And there were, I mean, if you, they, they took a class picture, and I think I have the thing somewhere, but I can't find it. But it's, I mean, every type of person you can imagine. So, but I, I don't know what their, criteria are for saying yes you're going to be accepted or no you're not gotcha if that answers your question yeah i mean they must have some kind of a a background check of some kind yeah you would you would think and you know again i mean it's not something that just everybody can can i guess take off work for a lot of this i mean if i remember right there were certain people that were there with their bosses like their uh, I think the, I think it was the LA County Sheriff's Department. There were quite a few, quite a few people there from there, and there were, you know, people from from every, uh, like there were 
basic level, uh, just sheriff's deputies all the way up to, you know, your higher ranks, I guess I should say. So mm. it's, you know, one of those deals, I mean, a little bit of everybody, but you have to have, you have to be able to get the time off. And some of those places for one, probably don't have enough, uh, employees to give somebody that kind of time off to do something like that, much less, you know, just be out of, you know, losing that many people at one time. Right. A- after you received this training, did you ever find yourself in a particular situation where you were called upon to use it? No. And from from what I from what I'm seeing now, I mean, the fact that the Ohio train derailment occurred and everybody's sort of doing a bunch of research on how many train derailments there are in the nation on a you know in a given year, which there's quite a few. I think a lot more than make the news uh, and the chemicals that, that that are carried by these trains and to be quite honest, every other form of transportation, uh, you know, if, if something that's actually a question that's been asked me by a couple of different people uh, recently, actually, because I'm sure there's probably a list of everybody that's obviously gone through this training that if something were to happen in I guess a region or area or, you know, I don't know what the specific criteria would be for the situation because most larger areas have a hazmat response, but what the response would have to be in order for somebody to start going through that roster of people that have that training and go, these people know, you know, what they're doing or have had this type of training in the past couple of years. So they haven't, you know, forgotten it because I've, I've forgotten quite a bit, I'm sure. So, I mean, I'm sure if you put one of these, you know, meters in front of me that we used back then, I'd probably have to have a, you know, 15 or 20 minute refresher on it before I recalled how to use it. But, you know, there's probably some people that that may get a call or may have gotten called, but I haven't. It would almost be a liability to some extent, in particular, if they were trying to carry out a false flag, because like you said... Having gone through this training, which you assume is a hundred percent legitimate, that you would you would see a particular incident play out in front of you, uh, either on television or in the news, and then you would be able to pick up on inconsistencies. Yeah. Or you would see things that you would say, "Well, wait a minute, that person would never be standing there, or that person would never be right. doing that." You know, much like much like me with these fake shootings. Uh, you know yeah. th- that are associated with schools. They, they having gone through the training and having been in schools, you know, and and participated in it. None of it passes the smell test. You're right. I mean, like I was just saying, you know, earlier on the, you know, the people that were responding to the to this situation in Ohio. The fact that I've had this training and looking at the videos of of how they're responding to it and people picking up. You know, soil and with with no PPE on whatsoever, and dealing with water with no PPE on that would that would not occur. I mean, if we went through this training and we were in full, I mean, these are Class C suits, which you know these big Tyvek suits that you would see on a you know like you see on TV shows and movies. I mean, those are the real deal, and you know, masked up. You put tape around every. Uh, scene that's in everything i mean and these people are just walking around 
you know, some of them may have a mask, you know, just a basic mask on, but no technical PPE whatsoever. I mean, that wouldn't happen. Right. The ironic thing, I mean, like, like I told you in the email, uh, and I've actually found more information since that email, but the, this facility actually has, uh, a class action lawsuit from what I can, from what I can tell that goes back a number of years regarding the dumping of a ton of chemicals. And I just think that it's ironic that, that a, a facility that's doing training of how to respond to these, these chemicals, if they get out into, you know, the public domain, the fact that they're doing that on a facility that has had those chemicals dumped there for decades. It makes me wonder whether or not the stuff in East Palestine, that, that the reason that they wouldn't be wearing all of that, of course, was to not panic the public. But, I mean, in your course, did they cover anything like that? Did they say, look, we're not going to wear the stuff because we don't want, you know, the surrounding public to see what we're wearing and, and then say, well, we're they not... Never, yeah. They never said anything of the sort. I mean, it was when... When you're talking about those sort of chemicals, I mean, I'm pretty sure that it's it's an all or nothing kind of deal, and I don't understand. I don't get the the responders showing up with with no PPE on, and after the fact, them being okay. I mean, it would be interesting to find out. Okay, who are these people specifically? Who are they? And then follow them for days, months, weeks after they've finished their, you know, dealing with whatever cleanup that they were involved in and see if they had any after effects. And if not, why? Right. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I hadn't thought about that until you just brought it up, but that is a good point. I mean, I mean, again, in East Palestine, we know for a fact that people have left who were there cleaning it up and they were getting sick and they would have to leave. Even they had CDC workers, apparently, who were there a week or so after it had happened. And they were like, yeah, this place sucks. We got to go. And then, they, and then they just left because they didn't have anything with them to protect them from anything they were breathing in or their skin being exposed to anything or whatever. But I mean, why even have the training then? Why even have these policies and procedures? Unless, of course, it's not for domestic accidents, quote unquote, but it's more right. for what they would deem to be a, uh, you know, a foreign agent of some kind. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully some point we find out, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Right. To get off on another bit of a tangent, if, if you're good with that. Go uh, for it. Like Antifa, the BLM, I mean, any of this stuff that's going on, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like those types of people uh, are the ones that probably have been vaccinated and Lord knows how many they've had. And if, if, the, if the died suddenly issue continues like, like it is, I mean, there's no telling how how bad it's going to get and how fast. But if, if that's the case, if they are, which they seem to be the, you know, liberal types that are, that are vaxxed and boosted and, you know, all that. And it's just going to be, if they end up dying, 
like what people are, are thinking is going to happen, then they're probably not going to be around to be doing what they're doing very long, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And that's certainly something that's been brought up. And even it's, as, as I've said, I, you know, in fact, now that you mention it, it, it floods my memory. That's something that even comedian Bill Burr mentioned, uh, you know, a while back. He was even talking about that. He's saying, so wait a minute. He says, you got all these lefty lunatics out there screaming that everybody should get vaccinated because they're all jabbed. He goes, so what are you left with? You're left with a right. bunch of muscle-bound, tough dudes who, who hate the government, own a bunch of guns, uh, aren't getting vaccinated, won't do anything the government says, and that's what's going to be left. And it's like, yeah. And then a bunch of people just kind of laughed at that, and I thought, no, that's exactly what's probably going to happen. Yeah, that's hitting the nail right on the head. Yeah. And, you know, it, I mean, and even there's, I can't imagine the number of people that, I don't want to say cognitive dissonance, but, I mean, I'm sure that's a good portion of it, but there are entire families that I'm sure have been faxed, boosted, and you know, whatever. And when those people start dying, depending on the order in which they die, um, you know, from a, from a asset monetary standpoint, who, once an entire family is gone or the majority of it, if even, and even if they do have, you know, a trust or a will in place, who's going to be left with those assets? I mean, it's it's going to be the government, which is, you know, a sad, probable truth, but it is what it is. And the government even changed the trust laws. I want to say they they changed it a year or two ago, but it doesn't go into effect, I think, until next year. But on on all trusts, you can't do I think it, it takes away your ability to do a blind trust. Like all parties involved with the trust have to be named within the trust. So they're going to know who to look for whenever things go. And if, you know, and, and that's to say if somebody dies and they, I mean, you know, I'm sure that everybody has gone through the, the process of having a loved one die and then dealing with the after effects of, you know, dealing with a will or going through probate or, you know, whatever else. Hopefully they had something in place to pass their stuff down, but you know, that can be a lengthy process. And if the person that things are getting passed down to, if they die in the meantime, you know, what happens then? So I just keep thinking that everything's going to go back to, it's going to be taken by the government. Yeah. That's certainly a scenario I've covered here on the show. Same thing with, same thing with children. If, if their parents pass away, and there's no yeah. outstanding family. And like you said, there's no trust in place where it says, okay, the children of the surviving family, uh, you know, if their parents are gone, the children go to this person and they go to that person. Well, it means that they're going to end up children of the state. Yeah. And that's bad news. Equally as large problems is the fact that these kids that have been manipulated by their parents and forced to take the shots themselves. I mean, you know, you've talked about that ad nauseum on on the show yeah and it's just it's it's sad i mean there's <laughs> i don't know what more to say about it but it's yeah it's not it's not stopping that's for certain let me let me ask you this though 
when um when you were associated with your paramedic group, was this before or during the COVID nonsense? Oh, this was right before. Okay. This was back in I I this was into two thousand five. Okay. So a good a good time ago. Do, do you know for certain that that TERT training still exists? Yeah, yeah. It's I've uh, if I remember right, I sent uh, a good number of links about it. But there's yeah, there's it's yeah, and that's the crazy thing is the training is still going on, and I'm I've, I'm actually making phone calls to different places. I mean, I called the the law group that's involved with the uh, the class action suit to try to get some information for them. And I actually found uh, a couple hours ago, I was doing some more research and I found that that law group actually has a Q and a, uh, I can't remember when it was, it was probably, I think it was a number of months ago, but they had a Q and a about uh, the Fort McClellan uh, issue. That way, if, if people, you know, veterans that were stationed there had issues that they could, get some answers and, and, uh, contact them directly about, you know, about getting involved with it or getting some questions answered or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's, they, they still do the training. They not only do training there, but they also offer a good number of classes online, which, uh, you know, you would expect that, but they still, they still offer the, uh, the on-site training. And regarding that on the, the building that, that I was talking about earlier, uh, I, again, I don't know for certain what that building was. I mentioned to you in the email, it looked like part of an oil refinery. I mean, it was just piping everywhere with these, you know, huge stacks sticking up. So I'm, I'm guessing it was a, uh, facility to, to deal with the, the chemicals after the fact, but I don't know. Um, I'm trying to get some information on that, but I was, I got on Google, Google earth and I was flying all around that entire area and that building is gone and i i couldn't locate it anywhere i know i didn't dream it i mean it was it was there i mean it stuck in my head that wow this that's a crazy looking building and i can't i can't find it uh anywhere i can't find pictures of it online uh i i can't find it anywhere so i don't know uh i just this morning was doing some looking and ran across a video that uh, this guy did with his drone uh, there. I think it was seven years ago. And he did a, I mean, he did some amazing footage with his drone going throughout that entire facility. And uh, I, and it, that was seven years ago and I didn't see it on any of his footage either. So I don't know, I don't know when they tore that building down. So, but it's not there any longer. That's suspicious. Yeah, I mean, I and they've they've known about the, the the problem with the dumping and stuff there for a long, long time. I think the I don't think this case specifically, but there were something started there. It was a I think I saw paperwork on the the base closing commission. Uh, I think the date on that paperwork was 2012. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at it, but there were I'm still I downloaded that pdf this morning as well i haven't had a chance to read the whole thing but uh yeah i mean it's that's gone on for a a number of years but they've i mean they've been dumping chemicals there i mean for a long long time for decades i i don't i'm i'm gonna try to you know bring more attention to this uh, by putting it on multiple different uh 
social media places. But I mean, I, I just can't believe that I'm just now finding out about this. I mean, I was only there for a few days, but people that were stationed there for years, uh, obviously are having problems. And I, I just don't understand. I mean, you see the Fort Lejeune stuff on, on TV commercials constantly. I mean, it's, you see that almost as much as you see drug commercials, but, uh, on TV and radio, at least where I'm at. And, you know, I don't hear anything about this. And to me, this is at least that big, if not bigger. And I see no mention of this in media anywhere. Refresh my mind about the uh, Camp Lejeune stuff, because uh, you hear those you hear those ads uh, on the radio all the time, too. Yeah, it was uh, back, I want to say, in the 70s to 80s, I think, like mid-70s to mid-80s. Uh, they had, I want to say, bromine and another chemical that were in storage tanks that were leaking for a long, long time. Uh, supposedly before they knew about it. Uh, I don't know, you know, how much truth there is to that, but um, that causes all kinds of, uh, you know, cancer and any other number of medical issues. And it's a a pretty large class action lawsuit. I don't know. uh, I want to say that Biden signed uh, legislation that allowed it to go through. you know, a number of months ago, but that, which really surprised me that he, that he was the one that signed the legislation to, that would allow this lawsuit to go through. I don't know the ins and outs of all that stuff, but, uh, I do remember him being a part of okaying this to be pushed forward. I mean, this morning I was, I was just trying to get a, you know, a minute piece of information you know, about Fort McClellan. And I just contacted the, the, the law firm that was doing this. And like they had, they asked me a number of questions. Like, are you calling to be a party to this lawsuit? And I was like, no, I'm just looking for a very small piece of information. I was like, I'm not, you know, making a claim or, you know, anything. I was like, I'm just looking for some information. And they wouldn't, it's not that they wouldn't help me, but I think for what I was looking for was so innocuous that they couldn't help me. So they, they sent me to, the, the VA, so which I may actually find what I'm looking for there, but that's another story. So, but yeah, they they did they did question me as to whether or not I was wanting to be a party to the lawsuit, which I was not. So, because I mean, I don't have any medical issues regarding that sort of thing. So, let me ask you this too, given the fact that again you're a former paramedic and uh, and you probably know people who are in the profession or maybe even used to be, but what have you heard regarding? sort of the paramedic profession response when it comes to all of the COVID stuff when it first came down? I mean, did they all buy in 100%? Because one of the things, again, that I've always wondered is how many of those departments resisted all of it and said, look, we're not, we're not doing any of this. This seems extreme. I mean, how many people in those professions do you think would question what was actually happening? I would say... I mean, I, I, I do know a few people that are still in the, in that field. Uh, I haven't specifically asked them that, uh, but I would say that there's a good number of people that probably got out of the, the, uh, first responder field due to that. Uh, I do know that before COVID, uh, there, 
our our local departments, uh, our police department has been low on on officers for years, but they were a little lax, I think, on money, and they couldn't have a, a number of classes for that reason. Most of it regarding money, because you know everybody knows that you need first responders of all kinds, but they didn't have police uh, academies, they didn't have fire academies. And after COVID, every time I drive by the training center, there's a new class out there. So I don't know if they've if they've gotten grant money from the government for more first responders. I don't know if uh, the numbers of first responders, be they police department or firefighters, if they had a number of of personnel quit due to the those departments requiring COVID vaccinations. I, that I don't know, but I would I would like to. That would be something I, I can I can try to look into, but I just don't know how much honest information that there is about that that they would that they would be willing to disclose. I mean, that's you know I don't want to say that's HIPAA issues, but I could see them claiming that. I mean, yeah, you're not asking about you're not asking about specific personnel. You're just asking a, an overall question of their of their personnel status. So I, I mean, aside from them just not wanting that information out. They wouldn't. They wouldn't really have, a, from what I'm guessing, a legal reason to keep that from somebody. Yeah, I'm just curious as to whether or not you know. I mean, if you looked at all of the, I mean, well, you know, we can make some assumptions clearly, but in particular, if you look at the nursing profession and, of course, the entire medical profession, I mean, most of them went along with it. There were certainly plenty who didn't, and they would protest outside of their own hospitals that they were working in because they knew that all of this was nonsense, but. Um, I was just curious as to whether or not paramedics would go along with it, of course, being the quote-unquote first responders of having to take someone from point A to point B. Would they have a choice? Oh, I'm, I'm sure they, well, I mean, having the choice, I mean, it would be just like just like the choices they gave the nurses, either take the shots or, you know, we're going to fire you. Right. Um, you know, and I'm sure a number of them, you know, were probably, I don't want to say forced, but, you know, coerced by you know, holding their job over their head, yeah. either take the shots or go find, you know, work doing something different. So I'm sure a number of them, I mean, when you get in, I know for, if you're a, a, a firefighter or a police officer, you, you can do decent when it comes to, to money. But when you're a paramedic and, and this is always talked about, I mean, at least here where I'm at, uh, if you're if you're a paramedic, you do it because you love the work, because you want to help people and take care of people that that obviously need it, and you don't do it for the money. I mean, it's 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 not a job, it's not a career that you do for 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 money. So you do it because of the love of your fellow man. So and and there are most. I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday. There are. There are paramedics that I would trust with my life far more than some doctors that I've had interaction with. And, you know, that's probably never going to change. So, I mean, there are, there are doctors or I'm sorry, paramedics out there. And I didn't, I didn't realize this fully until I went through my training that you're, you're a hair from being a doctor. You really are. I mean, the knowledge that paramedics have is, is pretty vast that, the people don't understand how much knowledge they actually have and the the abilities that they have to to help people is is pretty vast it's it's i was 
I was uh, humbled when when I was going through school. I can tell you that. When when I look at a situation like that, I of course immediately go to something like a false flag. You know, are they, are they training people in order to enter a particular environment that really isn't dangerous, but they're telling the people who are participating that it's dangerous? And using all of that in order to trick the larger population, I guess all in all in one giant scheme kind of thing. Uh, I, you know, I, I really don't know, but yeah, it's odd because even even yourself, I mean, you know, it's a resume line, as you said, and it's it's a certain kind of certification, but. When push comes to shove and some event were to actually take place, like you said, does your phone ring now that you're not in the profession, but you have the training? Right. And, you know, this brings up a, another quick point. If if I can go down one more tangent, that sort of goes along with this. Um, sure. I don't recall if it was yours, if it was your show or another one that I did. Uh, I think I, know, I think Frank from quite frankly was talking about this one day, and I, I think you've spoken about it as well. The the fact that I think that the news or radio stations in New York City, I believe it was, were they either had PSAs or something that were telling people about what to do in case of a, a nuclear attack, and. Yes, that was that was New York. Uh, what was that? Oh man, you're right. I remember it now. It was um, the reason I bring that up is yeah. you know if they're if they're put, planting that seed in someone's mind or you know the population's mind, and then they they can have a bomb go off either at, there in in New York somewhere or in another large community, and just tell people. That it's a chemical agent or a biological agent or radiological agent or whatever they want, and you know, put the the fear of God in people. And there may be a legitimate bomb explosion, but there may be no agents at all. But they tell people that there are, and they've got people that are there acting like they're having problems, and they've got first responders showing up in full PPE doing their thing. I mean, it it you know. It makes for a good show if people are ready for it mentally. See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And in fact, I, I mean, I, I 100% believe that. I mean, that has to be one of the schemes. Just this theatrical, we're going to scare everybody into believing that something happened when in fact it didn't. Um, but we saw that play out in 2020. You know, we saw those, we saw those ships come up to the shores. Of, of New York City, and then there was one in California that were being used allegedly for the COVID sick. And and they even had little quarantine uh, sort of tents set up in Central Park, and you could come and get tested by people who, again, were in the full hazmat uniforms and the whole thing. And I'm saying to myself, they've got to be joking. I mean, this, has to, this of course, is clearly manufactured. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think it's, I think a lot of it is for a visual impact in order to twist the minds of people. Because again, if their television or radio tells them it happens, then it must be happening. Yeah. When uh, the Ohio derailment happened, and uh, I there were a couple of things on 
to be quite honest, I don't recall the exact thing that, that you said, but I was listening to your show and something triggered in my brain that made me go dig out this manual. And I looked at the final scenario and I was like, holy cow, it's almost the exact, the exact scenario with, you know, nearly the same chemicals, which was just my mouth at the floor, which is when I contacted you and, and see you the information, which, you know, pass on that information if you want. That's totally up to you. Uh, I didn't see anything within this manual saying that it couldn't be, uh, again, there's, you know, they said they train 2,500 people a year in this training. So they pass one of these things out to everybody that's there. So, uh, I mean, I'm guessing it's fair game for anyone to look at. There's nothing, technically there's nothing in this. that's not, you know, able to be located somewhere else on the internet. So, uh, you know, if you want to pass along, put in the show notes, a link to whatever, feel free. Uh, and yeah, so it's, there's, I mean, even it's just good information, you know, to, I don't know, not to scare people, but I mean, I'm that kind of a person that just likes this kind of knowledge, which is what drew me to it. I mean, just knowing, you know, chemistry and that sort of thing. I was not good at chemistry, but the idea of chemistry and how, you know, what stuff can do. And mostly because I was the paramedic, how to, what to do to fix it. So, um, you know, it's just good knowledge to have. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and just, I mean, for the sheer basis of, of American citizens needing to know that this training does exist and is offered to people. And that there's some kind of a screening process that apparently takes place, but uh, yeah, for, for what real motives we may never know. But certainly, for a visual perspective, it's it's certainly used to visually, oh, I don't know, stimulate people to say the least. I mean, if all of a sudden you've got people in your town showing up in hazmat suits, people would start to start asking questions. I know I would. Yeah. Even with even with even with my training, I mean, it would it would make me ask questions even more so. Yeah. But, you know, even if a, a person didn't have any training and you're 100% right, somebody shows up, you know, down the road wearing a hazmat suit, you're going to be wanting to know what's going on. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.